So begin our reading in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, America is at a crossroads. I firmly believe it. Now, not to be too shocking, because I also firmly believe that America is always at a crossroads. Freedom always seems to be purchased through blood, does it not? Thousands of lives lost during our initial war to break away from England. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost during our civil war to provide freedom for a, a segment of our population. Freedom that we've experienced down through our lives has come at great cost and cost in blood. Makes sense to us, right, as believers, because when we think about our freedom that we have in Christ, that also came at the price of blood. It's the blood of Christ that gives us the freedom that we have in Christ. But you know, it's, it's interesting as I watch our culture, I find that it's a, really a struggle between kind of two different concepts of freedom, or maybe two different areas of freedom. But our, our world in the last two years has changed, I think, more rapidly than any of us could have anticipated. 
And it, it, it has that way in, in many different ways. In, in the threats to freedom, when you look at some of the things that dealt with COVID and the restrictions that came in, into play. Now, to be honest, I don't really want to dip back into all the COVID hysteria. But what I do want to recognize is there are some things along the way that have made us rethink about what our freedoms are and what we're willing to pay for those things. When government infringes on uh, worship services and whether or not you can gather for worship, or when you do begin to gather whether or not you can sing songs and how you will conduct your worship, it made us start to rethink those things. Because when you live in a free society, there's always an element that wants to steer your freedom in a different direction or maybe take some of it away from you. So I do think that in any free society, you are always at a crossroads. The freedoms that you get to experience that were protected for you in the generations previous to you, it's your generation's time to protect those same freedoms for the people that will come after you. But I do notice this. I do notice that on both sides of a lot of these issues, the people are arguing for freedom. That it's uh, maybe a different definition of freedom. And that's what we're going to consider here this, this morning as we look at the book of Romans. And what we're going to consider this morning is freedom versus freedom. I think all of America kind of gets around this idea of freedom. But then uh, where we start to break down is in the definition of freedom and who gets freedom and what does freedom protect. That's where things really begin to break up. A lot of the battle in America today is a battle over what kinds of what you consider to be freedoms are being protected. It looks like we have a lot of freedoms that are constitutionally protected. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion. You can throw Second Amendment in there too if you want to. But a lot of freedoms that are constitutionally protected that we have segments of our society that are saying, no, wait a minute, we need to pull back on those. That's where cancel culture came in, right? We need to start canceling some people's speech. We need to start curbing what some people are allowed to say. We need to start regulating. In fact, the administration not too long ago decided to come up with a board that would regulate speech to an extent or what could be, what could be passed out out there over the wavelengths. And so there's things that are constitutionally protected that are being challenged. And yet at the same time, I find things that are not constitutionally protected that are mentioned nowhere in the Constitution that all of a sudden some groups of people are trying to protect those things as if they were constitutionally protected. You know, with those, I think a lot of the things dealing with the homosexual culture or with the trans issues, you know, it's at the point now where they're making things illegal. Like if you're a counselor or a therapist working with somebody that is considering trying to change their gender, they're trying to make it illegal for you to counsel them not to pursue that path. And that is something that is found nowhere within the Constitution. And so we have in our country kind of a shifting, uh, looking at, well, what are what is the freedom, this concept of freedom? What are the freedoms for? Are they for our constitutionally protected rights of speech and rights of religion and uh, bare arms and those kind of things? Or are these other fringe ideas on the edge of society? Is that what we should be focusing on? And so the struggle that we have within our nation actually... I find the same struggle within Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is dealing heavily with this issue of freedom, an issue of freedom's relationship to sin, and that's what we're struggling with as a nation. It really boils down to this one thing, is what is freedom? And where can we experience that greatest freedom? Now, it starts by the Apostle Paul anticipating a question. 
And the reason he anticipates a question is because in chapter 5, he's just been talking about grace. Grace is how God forgives us of our sins. Right? The grace of God looked down upon us in our sinful condition, and He said, I'm going to rescue them from that sinful condition. I'm going to send My Son to die on the cross to pay for their sins. He's going to rise again from the dead to give them life. And that's how they'll be delivered from their sin. When we put our faith in Him, as it talked about in Romans chapter 4, then we're delivered from our sin. And He finishes chapter 5 with this statement about grace. He says, wherever sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so now he anticipates this question. If we're all saved by grace, no matter how much sin is there, God overcomes that sin through His grace, well then, why not just keep living how we were living? Why not just live in sin? And he asked this question actually twice within the passage. He says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he asked the same question in verse 15, What then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And so he ends up talking about the law and how the law isn't what saves you, it's actually what condemns you. But God in His grace, through Jesus Christ, redeemed us out from under the law and so that we're not under the bondage of the law anymore. And so he anticipates the same question again. Well, then if we're not under the law, then why not just keep on sinning? Grace has taken care of it. At both times, he gives exactly the same answer, which is emphatic in the original language. He says, by no means. In other words, absolutely not. We cannot continue to live in sin just because grace abounds. In fact, grace itself teaches us to live contrary to that. He, he makes a contrast to it to their baptism. He says, look at your baptism. Baptism is a very physical thing that we go through that testifies to our faith. When we get baptized, we take and put you down under the water because it's a picture of two things that are merged into one thing. It's a picture of what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross and He was buried. He was put in the ground. And then Jesus rose again from the dead and came out of that tomb. And when we get baptized, we're picturing Christ's death and our death. Through my baptism, I am in Christ. And Christ is in me. It keeps using those couple little words, with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. And it's showing a union between us and Christ. When we go under the water, we're showing that we believe that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and that He rose again from the dead. And we're also making a declaration that because of that death, I am now dead with Christ and I am alive to God. I'm going to live out this new life. But then as it goes on and it begins to talk about these freedoms and it's pushing the people to a choice. Shall we continue in sin? Absolutely not. It wouldn't actually be freedom to continue in sin. Christ delivered us from our sin. We need to be dead to our sin. And so He's exhorting them to live according to this freedom. Now, uh, there's a choice to be made. Now, the first... The first thing that we want to do as we kind of look through the passage is we want to kind of get an understanding of the choice. What is an understanding of this decision that he's calling them to make? Now there's about three different principles that are taught within the passage. They kind of make the framework for the decision. And then he's going to use three key words that are going to help us to know how to make this decision. So in understanding the decision, the first thing that we need to understand is that it is a binary system. All through this passage, you'll find there's only two ways. He talks about being slaves to God or slaves to sin. That's the only two paths spelled out through the whole thing. Slavery to God or slavery to sin. I know people are liking to reject binary things in our society lately, but there really, there really is just only two. 
There's only two paths here. We see that in Jesus' teaching as well. In Matthew chapter 25 and verses 31 through 33, says, When the Son of Man comes in all His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Notice He only has two hands. He's placing one group on the right and one on the left. That's two. And he's also describing the people as both sheep and goats. The sheep are the ones that are going to get to go on into the kingdom that is prepared for them that he's going to tell them. And the goats are going to be the ones that are sent off into everlasting destruction. But there's only two paths. Now the one path that goes away from Christ is broad. There's lots of different things that fit into that one path. But it's still either you make it or you don't. It's just two things. Jesus also talked about it in Matthew chapter 7 on the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. There's only two paths. Either you're following Christ or you're following something else. Either you're on the path that's consistent with salvation or you're headed on a path that deals with destruction. And that's what as we look through Romans chapter 6, he spells that out. He says, look, either you are free from God and free from righteousness and you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to God and righteousness and you're free from the other. Now, he keeps using this little phrase, leads to. In chapter 6 and verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But he says one leads. Sin leads to death. Obedience leads to righteousness. But then also he skipped down a little bit, uh, verse 19 or so. It talks about lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Verse 22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. If you back all the way up into chapter 5 of the book of Romans, in verse 16 it says, And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And with following, with that statement, you can just kind of read it backwards, right? Because one, in in chapter 6, he's saying, look, this leads to this. Um, Chapter 5, he's basically saying the same thing, but but backwards. This follows this. And so you still have the same relationship. In chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death... Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we recognize that, you know what, there's, there's just two paths for us to consider. Each path leads to something. Sin leads to death. Obedience leads to righteousness and eternal life. And so each of them have an ultimate destination that we need to be aware of. You know, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
Peter would say a very similar thing in 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The point is, the freedom that we have in Christ was never intended to be lived out in a way that is sinful. It kind of boils down to this one thing. What is our freedom? Is our freedom a freedom from sin? Or is it a freedom to sin? And that's really where I see the pivot in the direction of our nation right now. Are we looking at freedom as a freedom from sin? So we can live responsible, righteous, moral lives? family-friendly environments in our communities? Or are we pursuing a freedom to sin? Both sides are claiming freedom, but one is a freedom to justify and, and push the acceptance of about every kind of sin you can even imagine. Lisa was watching through some videos and stuff on Facebook and she came across, a, I don't remember, an America's Got Talent or something like that. And they had to point out the fact that this one person was in a polyamorous relationship. A relationship that's hugely ungodly and they make a point that that's what stands out different about them so let's talk about that before they perform or after i don't i don't know i didn't see the video but there's so many things that are being pushed that are like you can do this you can do that now they're even talking about um, people who abuse children is they're giving them a new name they call them maps now minor attracted persons they call them and so it's not pedophilia anymore why because they're trying to remove the stigma about every kind of horrible ugly sinful thing that you can think of so the people can do the worst of things and still feel good about themselves. You know what? It falls completely flat. But that's the point. In our society, we have segments of people now that are trying to push and parade right down the street groups of people that are acting in all kinds of defiling ways. It's all being touted under freedom. They have the freedoms to do this. And that's what we're going to look at. That kind of brings us to our last point that we see even within the book of Romans is that each involves both freedom and servitude. There is no way to not be a servant. Reminds me of Bob Dylan's song. You gotta serve somebody, and he says, it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You know, I never realized until later when I became a Christian and everything exactly how true that song is. Because you know, there was time in my life before I was a Christian that I was living a pretty rebellious life. My junior and senior year, I rebelled against the authorities that were over me at school. I rebelled against the authorities over me in my home through my parents. I, re- I was rebelling pretty much everywhere I could rebel. Why? Because I was being my own man. But you know what? For some reason, I wasn't the first person to ever say I was being my own man. You know, the point is, that comes from somewhere. Right? Everybody's influenced by something. You know, you can be either influenced by God and righteousness and truth, or you can be influenced by Satan and the world and the flesh and falsehood. But the fact of the matter is, nobody just stands on their own two feet. Everybody's influence impacted. But look back at the Garden of Eden. Right when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden and Satan comes to Eve. Now, who was Eve influenced by before Satan? Well, she was influenced by God and she would be influenced by Adam. And Adam would be influenced by God and influenced by Eve. Decent influences. When Eve got the, got the idea in her head that uh, she was going to go a different direction, take the reins of her life and go, go the way that is best for her, who was she under the influence of? Satan. She didn't come up with that idea on her own. You know, we really don't. We really don't come up with ideas on our own. We, we, we get impacted by people that we're around. We get impacted by things that we read. We get impacted by experiences that we go through. We get, when somebody says, well, this, this is just what I believe. You're, that belief came from somewhere. Actually, probably from lots of places. And so you're not really free. There's no way to be free from impact from other people or other systems or other, other thoughts. 
There's no way to be completely free of that because you're born in the middle of a context that gives you experiences and gives you ideas and you learn language and concepts come through language. and So there's no way to be totally free. Everybody is in servitude. So both of them have a measure of freedom and have a measure of servitude. You know what? Our founding fathers recognized that. James Madison, our fourth president, he said, we have staked the future of all of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. We've staked everything. This, the whole future of this nation and this people rests in this one thing, the ability to self-govern. You know what that means? It just simply means you tell yourself what to do. It doesn't mean nobody tells you what to do. It means you've you got you to gotta step up. You've got to be the one to tell yourself. It's kind of like when you're raising kids. When, when my kids were two, they would grab the finger or I would hold their hand when you're going across the parking lot or crossing the street. Now, at 16, that would be really awkward. But what's happened, they have to get to the point where they can govern themselves, where they can look both ways before they cross the street. Now it's safe for them. There was kids that uh, I was giving them bedtimes and they thought that was just ridiculous at their age. And I told them, hey, as soon as you can show that you can control yourself and put yourself at a, to bed at a decent time, you can make that call. And most of them learned how to do that shortly after that because they wanted to tell themselves to do it. Well, that's what James Mattis is saying. He's saying, look, the only way for a free nation to survive is if they can govern themselves, if you can tell yourself what to and not to do. But notice, even James Madison, he says it's not just about making good decisions. It's about making good decisions based on what? The Ten Commandments. He has a standard of truth that has to be upheld. Samuel Adams said, A general disillusion of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of the common enemy. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But once they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. If virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, they will never be enslaved. This will be their great security. And so our founding fathers recognized that freedom can only be maintained through a moral and informed populace. If we give up on our virtues, if we lose sight of what is good and what is evil, uh, we will fall to the first invader, whether it's from outside or from inside. George Washington said, Arbitrary power is most easily established on the ruins of liberty abused to licentiousness. He also said in his farewell address, And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Daniel Webster also said, If we and our posterity neglect religious instruction and authority, violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions of morality, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all our glory in profound obscurity. John Adams We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled with morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Patrick Henry, as he seems to do, puts it up maybe the most blunt, bad men cannot make good citizens. It is impossible that a nation of infidels or idolaters should be a nation of free men. 
It is when people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. You're either in bondage to God and morality and virtue and life, or you're in bondage to sin, which brings death. Now, throughout the passage of Romans, there's also very clear that one of them, one of those, even though he describes it as slavery, should be considered as free. And one of those is just total bondage. He keeps using the word of dominion. Sin shall not have dominion over you. If you think that sin is what makes you free, if you just do what you want, that is what makes you free, well then try quitting it. Sin works bondage in our lives. We might be playing with it at first, but pretty soon it will be very hard to quit. We get addicted to those things. Why? Because they're lusts. With God, our servitude toward God, our slavery to God is actually freedom. And you know why that is? It's because that relationship with God is what we were created for. We were created in the Garden of Eden in an unconfirmed, because it hadn't been tested yet, but holiness. We're created to live in holiness. We're created to live in fellowship with the God who made us. Sin was the intrusion. Sin was what came in and brought us into bondage. And so when you think about what we're made for, what we're created for is the environment that is actually where we're the most free. That's why Jesus would say in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. A couple verses later, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Why is it that our servitude to God actually sets us free? It's because that's what we're created for. That's a realm that we're designed in. A fish is created for water, so he's the most free in water. A bird for the air, so he's most free in the air. Mammals on the ground, they're most free on the ground. You were created for a relationship with God to be lived out in holiness. That is where you are free. That is where you are actually home. Both of them contain an element of freedom and an element of servitude. But the servitude towards God is where you belong. It's where you fit. You know, I remember in my rebellion, I pushed it to the point where I got kicked out of school for a few days, got kicked out of my home. Um, well, I, pu- I knew what was happening. I already had a place lined up to live. I pushed my parents to a horrible place uh, where they had to say, look, you, you're going to follow this rule. You're going to leave. And, you know, for a while I went out and I was free. <laughs> you know what freedom looks like? It looks like sleeping in a concrete basement with three bachelors living up above you and they're doing their laundry in the middle of the night in your room. That's what it looks like. It didn't feel all that free. You know when I felt more free? When I finally came to the end of my came to my senses and I went home and I knocked on the door and went in and talked to my mom and dad around the dining room table and said, Can I come home? And dad says, Nothing's changed. The rules are still the same. So I'm good with the rules. You know how good that felt to go home? You know, it's the same with God. Sometimes we rebel against it. We kick against it. It feels so good to go home. God's not going to change the rules for you either. He's not going to change what's good and bad, what's sin and what's righteous. But it is so good to get home. Servitude to God is where we belong. Well, then he also focuses on making that decision. So three steps to making this decision as we find within this passage. And the first one is in knowing. He keeps using that word, know. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And then a little bit farther down in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Verse 9, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Verse 16, right after again asking, are we to continue in sin? In verse 15, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourself as slaves to anyone uh, as obedient slaves, then you're slaves of whoever you're presenting yourself to? 
And so he keeps asking him, look, you you know, don't you know this? And don't you know this? And we know this? And we know this? In other words, Christian practice is always based on Christian precepts. The things that we do in our life are are based on the things that we know. You are dead to your sin because of your you being united with Christ. And so Christ's death no longer has dominion over Him, so death should no longer have dominion over you. And so look at all these things we know. It would be completely contradictory to everything that you know to go out and live in sin. We need to experience the, the freedom that we have in Christ, and the freedom that we have in Christ is never a freedom to sin. It is always a freedom from sin. So you've got to know something. Not only have you got to know something, and he also says to consider. Then verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Now you need to go a step further and consider yourself. Identify yourself as dead to sin. Not long after I came to Christ, I was focused on Romans chapter 6, and I just kept reading through it and reading through it, thinking about it. I thought, consider, consider yourself dead to sin. That's how I look at myself. That's how I picture myself, it's telling me. Picture yourself that way as dead to sin. And I thought, wow, well, if I'm a dead person, then I don't have control over my hands. I can't touch anything I shouldn't be touching. I can't taste anything I shouldn't be tasting. I can't see anything. I can't look at anything I shouldn't be looking at. I couldn't. A dead person has no control over any of those parts of his body. can't do any of those things. And I thought, you know, this is huge. Every time I'm confronted with a temptation or a sin, I'm just going to say, nope, I'm dead. Can't do that. And it had real impact in my life. And then what I did to help that was I'd take uh, verses. I'd write down Bible verses that stood out to me and carry them around on 3 by 5 cards. But it all came back to this. Who am I? Am I alive to sin or am I dead to sin? Am I alive to God or am I dead to God? But then lastly, he also says that we're to present. He used this word five times in the, in the last part of the passage. In verse 13, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey? You know, it's just, it's just really that practical. In verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Most commentators point out that of these three words, know would have to deal with the mind. Consider kind of drift toward the heart, although the heart is often used about what we know as well, but so there's a little overlap there, I think. But consider how you view yourself is definitely becoming more of a heart issue than just a knowledge. And then it says this idea of presenting yourself. Well, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you actually make the decision. And so that one is the will. And so most commentators would point out that when we deal with these three steps, we're dealing with the mind, the heart, and the will. And you know what? That's exactly what this battle over freedom is about. This battle over freedom is a battle for your mind. It's a battle for your heart. It's a battle for your will.